Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. You might know Zynga from its mobile gaming titles like Words with Friends and Farmville, the social game that took over Facebook back in 2009. Today, Zynga operates hundreds of casual and hyper-casual mobile games that reach more than 200 million monthly active users. That ubiquity in the mobile gaming space has led to its $12.7 billion acquisition by gaming studio Take-Two Interactive, which closed in May. Gabrielle Heyman, head of global brand partnerships at Zynga, works with advertisers to help them tap into the company's massive engaged audience. Much of her job is dispelling myths about the gaming audience. From the obvious, no, gamers are not all young men wearing hoodies and drinking Mountain Dew in their mother's basements. To the less obvious, yes, people are okay with being interrupted during mobile gameplay. In this episode, Heyman talks about how Zynga is evolving its offering for marketers as gaming becomes more mainstream and touches on her career as a female executive in gaming, a notoriously male space. I'm Allison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hi, Gabrielle. How are you? I'm great, Allison. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me as your guest. Yeah. So for all of the non-gamers in the room, first tell everybody a bit about Zynga. What is it? What popular games do you own? What are you most known for in, in the gaming world? Sure. So Zynga is one of the largest mobile game publishers. We were recently combined with uh, Take-Two Interactive as their mobile gaming arm. We have over 100 games, so we pretty much have a game for everyone. Everything from our classics like Words with Friends and Zynga Poker, all the way to some new franchises like Hair Challenge and High Heels. Uh, and everything, which are like the TikTok gaming fans and everything in between. So we have a lot of games here. Um, and we are global, 200 million global players. So we we delight people all the time with games. Yeah, I, I got to admit during the pandemic, I got really into words with friends in the beginning. Like I got back into it and uh, it's a great game. It's <laughs> it one of those games. Up. Yeah, it's one of those games that people always come in and out of, you know, depending on their mood. But it's a classic. It's Scrabble, you know, on your phone. How can you go wrong? It's classic. Yeah. And I'm a nerd, so I love word games. Anyway, so you mentioned that Zynga was just acquired by Take Two. So talk a little bit about like what that means, what is Take-Two, as the two businesses come together, what is the offering? Well, I think that Take-Two has some amazing studios, 2K, Rockstar, uh, or just a couple that have amazing franchises like NBA 2K and Grand Theft Auto. And they didn't, they had some mobile games, but they didn't have the depth and breadth that Zynga has. So it was really seen as a complementary acquisition where we were kind of filling this need that they didn't have. And on the same note for Zynga, you know, we were just getting into cross-platform titles um, right before the acquisition. So it made a lot of sense. And, you know, it's been a few months now, and I would say my life is mostly the same as it was before. <laughs> um, I think that they have the same philosophy that we have, which you know we've acquired so many studios over the years, and we really keep the culture alive at those individual studios. So that's very important for us, and I think that's part of why we were so successful in the um, 
and acquiring so many really great studios like Peak and Rollick, for example. So Take-Two has that same philosophy. So we're really keeping a lot of the same culture of Zynga, which you know, I've been here almost nine years and it's definitely what's kept me here for so long. This company has, I always say it's a really big heartbeat. So, um, so that's, that's continuing. Yeah. So talk, you've been there for nine years. Talk about how, how did you get to Zynga? How did you get into the gaming space? So I started in gaming actually at Electronic Arts in the early 2000s. So I spent five years there, you know, as a salesperson, as an account executive, doing actually some of the very first console integration. So I um, sold Honda and the snowboarding game we had called SSX and things of that nature. And, you know, I got to say a lot's changed, but a lot stayed the same too. At the time, actually, when I worked at EA, I was part of a company called Pogo.com. And for any of like the game business geeks out there, they're going to know what that was. But basically, it was this really big web game publisher. And so EA acquired Pogo. And then um, I went to Pogo. But at the time, you know, web games were predominantly female. They were called casual games. And it's sort of similar to now where mobile is a predominant platform and they're kind of mobile's casual games and skews more female. So um, that was my first adventure in gaming. Then I went to Yahoo for five years. I, I did a stop at BuzzFeed. I had a very short stint at a network uh, called Tremor at the time. I think it's Telaria. I'm not really sure what it's called now, honestly. Um, and I, you know, the network business was not for me, though I learned a lot there. So it was great. And then um, I was recruited over at Zynga. So I left Tremor in six months and came over here. Yeah. So you kind of came, you started in gaming, but then you came back to gaming by way of an ad sales background, which sort of shows how the space has evolved over time, become huge for advertisers. And I still think advertisers don't totally know how to tap into it, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So your role is head of global brand partnerships at Zynga. Talk about like, how do you work with brands? What's your day-to-day like? And, and what are the different offerings that you can provide advertisers? So games are mass, mass market entertainment. I mean, this is the preferred entertainment um, genre, I guess you could say for Gen Z, they prefer gaming over movies and TV and, you know, every generation games. So it's a really broad audience. And of course, that's what brands want. They want a broad audience. And, you know, in mobile, um, there are ads in many, many games. So you just sub 10% of people, let's say, pay in app purchases. Um, in mobile games, even though it's like a multi-billion dollar industry, 90% of people are grinding it out, watching ads for awards and games. So there's a lot of um, advertising opportunities in the mobile game space. And of course, also you're seeing it in console and PC. But I would say that mobile games are uh, the most evolved to be a very sophisticated ad offering for brands on multiple levels. You can buy it programmatically. You can buy banners. You can buy video. And then all the way up, you can buy deep, deep integrations and 360 programs. So really, it's you know the fact that there's such high reach. So many people are playing um, that the mobile device is so ubiquitous. People have it you know in their pocket, next to their bed stand, on their bed stand. They're playing all day. 
and there's a game for everyone. So you can really reach specific demos in it. it has made it a really interesting opportunity for brands. And like I said, it's nothing new. I mean, 20 years ago, I know it's betraying my age, but I was selling it 20 years ago and I'm selling it today. So um, if anything, it's just more high profile, like you said. Yeah, I think, you know, games, casual mobile games have been around for a long time, but I feel like advertisers are now sort of more waking up to the opportunities in gaming as, like you said, a mass reach platform. But you also have the opportunity to target, right? You have that digital component where you can reach specific audiences. So talk about like how the gaming advertising experience has evolved over time. Like what new ad formats, what new integrations are available now? So I think that, um, I mean, one, you know, big evolution, like I said, was just programmatic access to games. I think that the best kept secret I always say in mobile gaming is video. CTV is not the only place to buy video. Um, so games are an amazing source of video. What I think is one of the more interesting things, not as much from the consumer experience, but from an advertiser experience that I've seen really evolve is rewarded video. So rewarded video is probably the best format for video in gaming because it's really native to the experience and you're watching a video in exchange for a reward in the game. And like I said, all those people grinding it out, they're really looking for those rewards in games. And there used to be this very strange misperception from advertisers of like, isn't that bribing someone to watch my ad? And I never really understood that because the truth is it's making your ad have this amazing halo that you're offering the consumer along their journey a favor, a step up. And so they're going to remember you as being like, wow, like they helped me on my gaming journey. And, you know, games are something like people who play games, it is their favorite, one of their favorite things to do. They tend to be really passionate about it. And they would even say that they would, you know, like gladly skip other entertainment activities that they do if it meant not losing their favorite game. So, you know, being entwined with the consumer along those lines is really important. I think nowadays, what's so interesting to me is that now brands really, really want rewarded games. So rewarded video, I should say. So it's really come full circle in terms of their understanding of the platform of the consumer experience and why rewarded is like such a great place to be. In terms of integrations, I think what's been a really nice evolution is that I do think brands are getting more savvy in being more natural in the environment, not necessarily just stuffing like a logo in that makes no sense, but how can you really have like contextual relevance and meet people where they are and do things in the game and really trust their gaming partners to guide them and have like the best experience possible in terms of integrating the brand? Yeah, I think to your point, like advertisers have learned that interrupting gameplay is like the worst possible thing that you could do, right? So things like rewarded video, where you're actually like become part of the game and you can offer rewards and points and tokens or whatever it is to your, to the player. And then, you know, finding ways to integrate the brands that, like you said, aren't just some random logo slapped on something like they're, do you think that they're more understanding that that's 
the way that you can interact with gaming audiences in an authentic and positive way? Yeah, I mean, I would um, I would disagree with the worst thing you can do is interrupt a gamer because the truth oh. is is that we're really trained as consumers for commercial breaks. So when you're watching TV, you see commercials. And I have been in so many thought leadership conversations with brands where that's one of the objections I hear is like, oh, well, we don't want to interrupt the gamer. And I just think, have you been interrupting TV viewers like literally forever, you know? And so games like Words of Friends that you play, you know, they have commercial breaks. It's interstitials. And the majority of ads in like a game like a Words of Friends, it's like this turn-based game where there's a natural break at the end of your turn to see an ad. So I think that consumers are used to that experience. And in fact, hyper-casual, which has been dominating the charts and it's a sub-genre of casual gaming, really earmarked by kind of this like very fast to learn, easy to learn type of gaming experience. It's like the TikTok of gaming, just like very fast kind of snippets of entertainment content that can really be experienced in these short bursts. And there are predominantly ad-supported titles and they have dominated the charts. I mean, our studio, Rollick, has just uh, had 2 billion downloads and multiple number one titles. And so these people are realizing like, yes, I'm seeing ads, but I could pay three bucks to never see ads, but most people don't. They they accept the ads mm. in exchange for the entertainment content. And what I'll end my, my rant about this is that I especially feel like younger generations seem like they really understand the balance of kind of power of like, you get my eyeballs and I see your ads. And like they understand that this is what it takes to make the entertainment content free and they don't seem to mind. It's really interesting because one, it kind of does go against the narrative that you hear from everyone, right? Like don't interrupt gamers and young people can't uh, tolerate ads. And then it also kind of aligns with what's happening in the streaming space where you see companies like Netflix launching an ad supported tier and realizing that, oh, people actually do want that free option, even if they have to watch advertising. Absolutely. And I think that even, you know, in times of recession, for example, like you might not want to make that an app purchase. You might be more open to playing free to play games that have an ad experience. Now, it depends on the game, of course. Like, if you're in this really deep console game that you just spent like 50 bucks on, you're not necessarily going to want to be interrupted. And the best option to bring a brand in that type of a title might be different. I happen to personally be very bullish about ads in games, including console games, including video in console games. I think we're going to see it in the future. I think, I think that mobile games are learning from console and console are learning from mobile. And so, like, for example, you remember how back in the day TV was considered substandard for a serious actor? Like, they only wanted to be in the movies. And then it, the, it's completely changed. And obviously now all these, like, top, you know, actors are in movies that were in movies now are in TV. And it's sort of the same thing. I think the console has seen, like, wow, free-to-play, is some, there's something there. And they've released free-to-play versions of their games on mobile. And I just think that these lines are going to be continue to be blurred. So a game that has, like, a is not released annually, but might be released every five or seven years, like maybe somewhere down the life cycle, there'll be a place for rewarded videos in those types of titles. But 
Uh, I don't want to digress too much from the the question you asked, but yeah, I think sometimes people think that something's one way, but actually, if you really look at it, it's another and they just don't want to accept it because they assume that that's the case. But really, when you look kind of underneath the hood, that's what you see to be. Yeah. So to that point, like how much evangelizing education do you have to do with your clients and and what does that look like? Where, where are the most common misconceptions of gamers and gaming? You know, there used to be this narrative that gamers were all young men who were in their mother's basements, but what, what are you really like, what myths are you busting for brands today? I think that one of the biggest myths is who is a gamer? And this one is a little bit complex because if you ask a lot of people, are you a gamer? Unless they're playing a console game or like a PC game, they don't think of themselves as a gamer. And we define a gamer as anyone who's gaming. And, you know, everyone from like the younger, I mean, my kids, I have a nine and 12 year old and they're playing mobile games like all of the time. I mean, just this weekend, they were begging me to make a bunch of in-app purchases in games for them. Um, and, but also like that grandma playing words with friends, like to me, she's a gamer. The problem is if you ask them if they're a gamer, they're not saying they're a gamer. So sometimes this is a blind spot in consumer insights activity for brands. Like they do all of these, you know, surveys and research and insights into what their consumers are doing. And sometimes gaming doesn't pop merely because people are not self-identifying as a gamer. So this idea of like what a gamer is, it still has a lot of mystery. Um, And therefore, I do find that I have to do a lot of education. Now, there's a lot more people, more than ever now, that have caught up. And the IAB launched their inaugural Playfronts last year, last April. So it was the first marketplace for advertising in games, like not just, not like E3, which was predominantly just about you know, games. This was really around advertising in games. And what was so interesting was that there were so many presenters, us, Activision, Riot, Unity, and a lot of us presented research and it was like the same thing over and over and over. And there was like this, a lot of like justification of it's not that young male in the basement, like it's super broad and this is who's doing it. And, you know, and so I think we're finally at the tipping point of like knowing these things, but there still seems to be a lot of, a lot of education going on for sure. But I think Mm -hmm. we're ready for like level 200 class or level 300 class in gaming where, okay, we get it. Everyone's doing it. Like, how do I get in? And what are the best ways and what budgets should I use to get in? Yeah. Well, to that point, like, how are you getting brands to that next level? And how are you like, what sorts of things are you trying to get them to learn more about now that we've passed that threshold of like, okay, everybody games, we know there's a huge audience. Well, I think we meet them where they are. So, you know, every brand has different objectives, different ways that they want to spend their budget. So, you know, for example, programmatically. So we work with a lot of brands programmatically and a lot of brands prefer to purchase media programmatically. It has less friction for them. So we're able to do that. Um, you know, even banners, like I know it's crazy to think, but they're super popular and effective, especially for retailer and CPG clients. We also have been doing something that we love called playables. So playables are gamifying your brand. So we have we have a in-house game studio called Studio E. 
And they're based in Singa, Toronto, which is one of our game studios. And they literally spend all day making games for brands. And so, like, we just launched a mascara game. It was a match three uh, mascara game for Maybelline. We've done things in the insurance category and the entertainment category and the telco category. Because really, like, when you gamify your brand, you're opening up a two-way conversation with a consumer rather than just passively watching your commercial this person is like actively engaging in a message that you're trying to deliver. That's been really successful too. Um, and then all the way up into the integration. So some clients really still want to do these like bespoke integrations that are deeply enmeshed in the game. And therefore they even, you know, I would say communicate more deeply brand uh, attributes to consumers. And what we found, like we did a really interesting research study last year where we did an integration for an insurance company in one of our hyper-casual games. And we did a site visitation study with Kantar. And so we were able to see that with a two-week look back, we had like a 20% lift basically in people requesting insurance quotes, like going all the way to the end of the insurance quote. And what was interesting to me about that was that usually you don't think an integration, you think more upper funnel than conversion. But what we see is that there is this line of conversion, even in integration. So we're continuing to experiment and analyze what results we're delivering. So it's not only about favorability or awareness, it's also about really making the sale. Yeah, that's I want to go back to the um, the gamifying brands that you were talking about. Like maybe let's zoom in on the Maybelline mascara example. Like what were they trying to achieve? What what was the game you created? And then what were the results of that? So it's live right now. So it's a little too early to discuss results because it's actually like okay. mid campaign currently. Um, but Basically, you know, we were talking to L'Oreal, Client Direct, and I find that, you know, I love my agency partners, but a lot of the time to really get deep in gaming, like you need that client buy-in. And so we have the client buy-in. L'Oreal as an overall company understood that their consumers are in gaming. And what I love about Maybelline is, you know, they are a mass market brand and they wanted to get into mass market gaming. And Mass market gaming is mobile gaming. So they really chose the right genre. And like, you know, there's different makeup companies getting in gaming in different ways. I spoke with Patrick O'Keefe not that long ago on a panel who's in marketing at Elf. They have a sponsorship with like this influencer who plays console games. So she starts her video like doing makeup. And then she ends up playing games, which I thought was like a super cool integration. But, you know, that's a little bit more like niche and like a hardcore gamer who's like playing console games, right? Like this thing with Maybelline, mobile gaming is much broader, has a much broader audience. And they saw that it really fit the brand. So this game that we did, it they have three different types of mascara that they're promoting. And we had like three different matches you could make. So it really was about like this match is this mascara and th that matches that mascara. And like, this is what the mascara attribute is. And then you know what? Buy it here. So it delivers that full, full funnel experience. Um, and then the last thing I will say about that is that we've been really excited to partner with the beauty category because our hyper casual studio makes a lot of beauty and fashion 
games. So they make games like High Heels and Hair Challenge. And then all of a sudden, you've got a contextually relevant title for the beauty category, just like Vogue is contextually relevant, right, for fashion and makeup. And they've been advertising there for years. Like now we have this thing that like Gen Z and younger millennials are doing that's gaming that is beauty focused. That is like a perfect seamless fit for, for a brand like that. Yeah, it's super interesting. I was going to ask, like, for the Maybelline game, is that something that consumers have to go seek out themselves and, like, download on the App Store? Like, how do you get, like, a branded game in front of a consumer? Because I would imagine that's, like, they're more likely to just go to the platforms that they already use. Yeah, so our playables are served in ads. So it is extremely difficult to launch an app. I mean, it costs millions of dollars to promote an app on the app store. There's so much noise. There's so many apps being released daily. So what our philosophy is that brands can already take advantage of the tens of millions of consumers that we have playing our games by going where the audience already is. And then these games that we're making, these playables, they are, you know, bite-size 30-second engagements that we do for the brand. So they're like, they're like games within a game, basically. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it, Got it, it. the flights match the campaign flights um, for mm-hmm. our clients. As this take two merger, um, you know, takes off, I guess, <laughs> how is the Zynga offering changing? Like, how does your job change? Or are they keeping the two businesses pretty separate? I think that we are um, in the learning phase, right? Like, just like I said, we have very complementary offerings and I think we're learning from them and they're learning for, uh, from us. So one thing that happened is they had three mobile studios that have now come under our umbrella and we're zingifying them, I guess, which is the same thing that we've always done, which is keeping the culture of that studio unique and individual. Like when we acquire studios, we don't change their name. We don't change their culture. We want them to continue to do what they do best. But we have a lot of robust central services that we offer to these studios. So in the case of Nordia's Social Point and Two Dots, which came under the Zynga umbrella that were Take-Two Studios before, we have been able to support them with ad monetization, for example. So some of them, they already actually had a pretty great team. And we've been really excited because... Um, there's some folks in their Barcelona office from uh, Social Point, one of the game studios that we've been working with more closely. But it's being able to leverage like this really deep experience that Zynga has with its ad stack, with its network partners, with its brand partnerships. So we're offering that knowledge to them. And then I think in the inverse is that you know, Zynga had already... Uh, announce an intention to be multi-platform. So we have a game we're developing, Star Wars Hunters. That's an example that's going to be on mobile and on Nintendo. Um, and you know, we had already said that we were really interested in branching out into multi-platform console. So I think that we're going to learn a lot from the Take Two side on making really successful console games. Um, and then as they continue to develop other mobile offerings, we'll we'll be able to consult them too. Got it. Okay. So I'm going to drop the M word. (laughs) The metaverse is all anyone can talk about. And uh, actually, I know you and I were on a panel together in Cannes this year talking all about the metaverse. You had some sort of interesting perspectives on 
where the metaverse plays a role and, and like how the gaming audience intersects with that. I actually wrote a piece recently about how brands in a lot of cases seem to be sort of like jumping over the gaming opportunity in pursuit of the metaverse. So how do you sort of see like coming from the gaming side, how do you see like brands, the hype around the metaverse, the reaction to it, and maybe what brands can learn from gaming first before they go heads in on that? Yeah, I think one thing that just has forever fascinated me is this obsession with like the shiny new object. It just seems like humanity is built um, to always want that. And right now that shiny object really is the metaverse. And it's a complex topic because there's the Web 2 metaverse and there's the Web 3 metaverse. Of course, Web 2 being things like Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft. What I think is super interesting about that and those platforms is that the truth is mobile gaming, casual gaming, hyper-casual gaming tends to deliver much more sophisticated offerings than those platforms do for brands. So the reach is way higher. The exposure to your brand in those games is way higher. And frankly, like the information about how the reporting that you get is way deeper. So I have a lot of, I'm a co-chair on the IAB games committee. And so I hear a lot of things and I'm a student of you know everything. And so I know that the general casual gaming infrastructure is so much deeper. And the report, like I said, like the kind of metrics that clients can get back and the exposure that they can get back is so much deeper that, it's one of those things that I'm, you know, I'm always a little bit confused when people really want to jump in the metaverse, even though there's like such, so much more, maybe more of a deeper sophistication in terms of what we can offer brands. And also those three, you know, web two metaverse that I just mentioned are very youthful. They're very children focused. So, and, and that's great. Like nothing is wrong with that. Um, but the audience is just so much broader than just that. And then, you know, there's the Web3 metaverse and we have a blockchain gaming studio, which we announced last year. And, you know, this is, Zynga is really always about evolving and trying new things. And so this is really about experimentation under new platforms for us. And, you know, I always say that games are like weeds, like they'll grow wherever, you know, when you see like a plant growing in a crevice somewhere, you're surprised that this plant can grow in like the middle of the desert on this rock, you know, that's kind of what games are like. So like there's games on Snapchat. Well, at least there was before they stopped their gaming division. There's games on TikTok. There's been games on Instant Messenger and Apple. Like there's games everywhere. And obviously on the blockchain too, I think that games, um, I've just heard a lot of theorists and just people who are more knowledgeable about it than even I am, just saying that games are a really great entry point for the metaverse and for Web3 It it because the nature of gaming is kind of perfect as an entry point, but it's going to be much bigger than just gaming ultimately. Well, do you, I mean, Zynga is, is extremely well positioned, right. To sort of break into the metaverse. Like you were saying, it's not really there yet. The advertising offerings aren't there yet, but is that something that the company is, is looking toward and, and building toward? Um, you know, I think that we're always exploring what 
what is the best experience for players. And so um, I can't really talk about that specifically too in depth, but I can leave it with the fact that we're always innovating and we're always exploring new new platforms and new ways to reach consumers because our our mission is to connect people through the power of play. And so we're going to continue doing that uh, without disclosing too many specifics. Okay, fair enough. So I want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, you are a female executive in gaming. There really aren't that many of those, if I'm if I'm correct. So talk about like, you know, do you feel like there are certain stigmas you have to overcome or how do you sort of advocate for for more females to come into the space and what positives can that bring to the gaming world? Yeah, I I'm such an advocate for women getting into gaming because um, at least at Zynga, I think that we're treated with a lot of respect and with like the company really wants to groom more female talent. So we have a group internally called Women at Zynga, which their goal is, you know, to connect women internally, but really advocate for women inside Zynga. So I think that, you know, you do see a fair amount of women in gaming, in marketing, in advertising, and you don't see as many women in engineering and product management and like the more technical side of it. So Zynga definitely makes an effort like in our internship program and in different things that we do to really help educate women to be like those gaming engineers of tomorrow, because we see that, you know, mobile gaming skews female and who's going to make the best game for a female, but other females. So it's definitely a priority. I, um, you know, personally, I've, I've felt pretty supported at Zynga and in the industry in general. But I will say that I am a woman with many traditionally masculine traits, I guess. Like, obviously, I'm girly and this is a podcast. So you can't see my awesome nail art. Um, but... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm aggressive, assertive. Like I get what I get, what's mine, and I take my piece of cake. And you know, I've never, I've never been harassed or placed in a in a position that I felt like was compromising to me or my moral moral values or disrespectful. So, but I know that's not the experience of a lot of women in the workplace in general. So, I've really like. What my kind of focus is, like we have a mentorship program, is empowering women to take on some of those traits of being like assertive, confident, asking for what you want, like not being afraid to take your rightful seat at the table. So that's a lot of like my advocacy, I think, is empowerment and confidence and, you know, having those traits where I think a lot of the time men have more so than women, you know, there's that classic thing, like men will go for a job that they have like, you know, one out of 10 characteristics for, but like women won't go if they only have nine out of 10. So like, I'm really trying mm -hmm. to kind of breed, you know, help kind of breed that like badass confidence yeah. in the company. Well, I think that gaming and, and the working world needs a role model like you. So keep getting that cake. <laughs> I really appreciate it. That's sweet. Um, yeah. And I feel like, you know, that's 
that seems like to be like my special ingredient that I think has made me successful as like a sales executive that I think that kind of quality can be used like in engineering environments, in product management environments. So even though they're not the same environment, like those qualities I think can help women really advocate for themselves. Mm, Definitely. And do you think that, I know at Zynga, you feel that there is this support and, you know, an effort to bring more women on board. Do you feel like the industry in general is doing enough in that sense? I, I, you know, there's different companies have different cultures, you know, and we've heard some negative things about certain companies in terms of their cultures. And we've heard a lot of positive things. A lot of companies have you know, herbs and employee relation groups like Zynga does with like women at Zynga and women in gaming. And I know that Take-Two also um, has studios that have those types of groups as well. Listen, like we can always do more because until there's the engineering talent that's like equivalent to the levels of male candidates and, you know, recruiting is like a really important component of it because a lot of times what I found is that the people that come through the front. The truth is, is like I actually recently just recruited for a programmatic role. And I can pretty much say that 95% of the resumes I got were men. And you know, sometimes it isn't as easy to recruit women. And we do need to um work harder in that regard. And I, you know, I heard a story a while ago about how like people tend to recommend people for jobs that kind of look like them. So like, you know, white men will get a lot of white men like candidates and things like that. So I think it's important to make sure we can lift each other up. And sometimes to do that, you have to be a little bit more patient um, to find diversity. You have to turn over new rocks too, right? Look in new places. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for chatting with me about brands and gaming and female empowerment and all the things. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see uh, what games you guys come out with soon. Maybe the next Words with Friends is around the corner. Definitely. I'll I'll send you the, the link as soon as we launch anything exciting and new. Cool. And thank you for having me, Allison. You're a great moderator. I love being on panels with you and I really appreciate the insightful questions you ask. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Campaign Chemistry on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.